consistently leading us well. Uh, they get here early and work hard to prepare, so really appreciate that. You can open up to John chapter 1. That's where we'll be again today. John 1. In the first chapter of the Bible, the creation account in Genesis 1, there are a number of pairs of opposites. On the first day, God creates light and separates it from darkness. On the second day, he separates the waters above from the waters below. He calls the waters above heaven. On the third day, separates the water below from the heaven above or from the earth below and creates the earth, the dry land. And so you've got all of these opposites in the first three days. And then the next three days, he fills in those opposites. And in scripture, you see one of those pairs of opposites spoken of throughout the Bible. Heaven is consistently spoken of as God's realm. The heavens above are God's realm. It's where God and spiritual beings reside. And the earth below is the realm of mankind. It's where human beings live. And in fact, God gives the human couple the task of taking dominion over their realm. He puts them on the earth and says, take dominion over where you live, on the land the earth below, and you're to do that under God's lordship from heaven, where he resides. But as God does that, and as he separates these two realms, heaven above and earth below, he makes this special place, a garden in Eden, and this is the place where he puts the human couple on earth, and later on in scripture we learn that this garden was on a mountaintop, and on this mountaintop, this is the place where these two realms come together. Heaven meets earth there, and God comes to walk with the human couple in the garden in the afternoon. Two distinct realms come together in the garden, and God meets human beings there. Well, after the human beings sin, this special place where heaven meets earth is cut off from them. They no longer have access to God's presence, to heaven, to the realm where he resides. These two realms don't come together. But as the story progresses, as we saw in the book of Exodus, once again on Mount Sinai, interestingly enough, a mountain, God comes down to meet with human beings and he gives them instructions regarding this special place, a tabernacle. And this is to be the place where heaven will meet earth. And this was a place that had images of the Garden of Eden on it. And God would be there dwelling in the midst of human beings and, and heaven would meet earth. And if you were going to go into God's presence, this is where you had to go. Now these two realms remain distinct throughout scripture until you get to the last couple of chapters of the Bible. And as you get to Revelation 21, one of my favorite passages, so I'll refrain from reading it this morning because I've read it so many times here on Sunday mornings. But as you get to that passage, you have this amazing image of heaven coming down to earth, and it says that God is going to dwell with mankind. He will be their God, and they will be his people. And so the two realms have come together, and now they overlap as they were originally intended to do, where God would dwell with human beings. Now, it's really important for you to see this contrast between heaven and earth in these two separate realms. 
Heaven is God's realm and earth below is mankind's realm. And it's really important that you see this and that you see it in the biblical story and the way the tabernacle and the temple point to this coming together and then ultimately it happens in the new creation. It's important that you see this because it's impossible to grasp the significance of the story and of the passage that we're going to study this morning in John 1 without understanding heaven and earth and how they come together. Last week, we looked at John 1, 1 through 5. And in John 1, 1 through 5, there's, there's a description of the Word, His relationship with God. He was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And this was all in eternity past before anything else had been created. This week, as we study the prologue, we're going to move from that realm of heaven in eternity past with the word being with God and the word being God. And now we're going to enter into the realm of earth. And this is the place where men dwell. And in this realm, we're going to see heaven and earth coming together once again. And so as we prepare to go back into this passage, here's what we started looking at last week, keeping that distinction in mind four glimpses of the Word who became flesh. And we're looking at these glimpses because they're going to prepare us to see the Son, the Word, the light in the rest of the Gospel, but four glimpses of the Word who became flesh that prepare us to see Him. The first one of these is in verses 1 through 5, the identity of the Word. This is what we looked at last week. This is the realm of heaven in this passage. John begins his Gospel painting this beautiful picture of the Word. And if you're reading this for the first time, maybe you don't know who this is, and he doesn't identify who this might be to us, but he paints this picture of the Word and his identity. He is the one who existed before anything else, and he was in close relationship with God. He was with God, a term of closeness and relationship, and he at the same time was distinct from, or he was distinct from God and was at the same time God. He was of the same essence as God. And this Word was the creator of all things. You can see in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And this title, the Word, is rooted in the Old Testament and describes God's work in the Old Testament through his spoken word. Now this title is described to an or ascribed to an individual. And so these first five verses Give us a picture of this individual and of a relationship that existed in heaven in eternity past in the realm of God. But now when you move to verse 6 and where we're going to continue for the rest of of this week, we're going to finish this out today. Now you shift from God's place in heaven and the relationship there to mankind. And now you enter into time and space and the realm of earth. And our second glimpse you can see on the screen here is that there will be witnesses to the light or to the word. And this is in verses 6 through 8. Let me remind you again as we start looking at verses 6 through 8 that these glimpses are preparing us for what we're going to see in the rest of the gospel. And so here we're introduced to the very first witness to the light. Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And so you can see now we're in the realm of time and space, and there's this individual who is sent from God whose name is John. Now, to be clear, this is not the same John as the one who wrote this gospel. 
The one who wrote this gospel is the Apostle John, and he never actually names himself in this gospel. So this is John the Baptist, who you read about in several of the other gospels. And he's going to play a prominent role in the ministry of Jesus. He's the forerunner. He's the one who introduces the ministry of Jesus. Look down at verse 19. Just past the prologue, the lobby is what we called verses 1 to 18. But if you look at verse 19, it says, and this is the testimony of John. And so you're going to hear him witness to the reality of who this is. Now, John the Baptist is very important in the Gospels. And there's a reason that he plays such a prominent role in the Gospels. Because there's an Old Testament expectation that God would send a messenger, a forerunner before the Messiah. And that this individual would come and he would announce and proclaim his coming and he would prepare the way for him. Look at the language at the beginning of verse 6. There was a man sent from God. A lot of times the gospel writers will pick up Isaiah 40 that talks about a voice crying in the wilderness and they'll identify John the Baptist as that voice crying in the wilderness. That's not who John the apostle is referring to. That's not the text he's referring to here. He's referring to Malachi 3.1. Here's what it says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament and there's been sort of a, a radio silence for 400 years between Malachi and between this passage in John, where we're entering into time and space, John the Baptist is the next voice of prophecy that comes after the silence. But the Apostle John is not emphasized or does not talk about John the Baptist because he's so excited that the Lord is prophesying once again. He talks about John the Baptist because of the subject of his witness and of his prophecy. He writes about him because of the task that he's given in verses 7 and 8. Look there. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, right? He's not the main point here. He's not to be identified as the word. He's not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. You can see in verses 7 and 8, three times he uses this same word, witness, to describe John and his ministry. The idea here is that John is going to testify. It's, a, it's like a courtroom word. He's going to get on the stand and he's going to testify about what he has seen and about what he knows to be true concerning the light. And it seems likely that when it says John is going to bear witness to the light, that he's testifying to the expectations set in Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And so John's ministry picks up on this and proclaims the coming of the light. And he will serve as a witness to this light that has been expected and has been promised. 
And when he witnesses to the coming of the light, what's his goal? We'll look at verse 7 again. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. It's really quite a simple formula, right? I mean, this is the, the driving force of the whole gospel. It's that you will see the light and that you will believe in him. John does a very simple thing. He witnesses to the light. He talks about the light. He proclaims what he knows to be true about the light that has come. And he tells people about it so that they can believe. That's the bottom line. And John is not the only witness to the light in this book. And this is what I mean when I say this prepares for us to read the rest of the book. There are many other witnesses to the light to the word, to the person of Jesus Christ that we will see in this gospel. Listen to John 5. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. This is Jesus talking. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me. So John the Baptist bears witness initially, but then the works that Jesus does in the gospel bear witness to him about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So John the Baptist comes and bears witness. The works that Jesus do testify to who he is. The Father testifies to who he is. And the Father does that, interestingly enough, through the Old Testament scriptures. They testify and they witness to who Jesus is. And beyond these witnesses, there will be others in the gospel that will proclaim and testify and witness to us who this is that has come. Now, I want you to stop for a minute and think about yourself and the way that you encountered the light for the first time. How did you encounter the light, the gospel, the story of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ? How did that happen? Someone had to witness to you. It may have been the scriptures. It may have been a parent. It may have been a teacher. It may have been a friend. But someone proclaimed and witnessed to you about the light. They told you the truth about who this person is and what he has done. They proclaimed it because they had heard it from someone. And that goes all the way back to John the Baptist and the, the apostles and the witness of this gospel and we today carry on that same work. God has put us in this time for this purpose as a part of this huge chain of witnesses that have come down to us and that we have received and now we take it up and in our generation we proclaim the light and our lives serve as a witness and then as our lives serve as a witness we actually open our mouths and we speak the truth about the life to people, the light to people. And we proclaim who he is. And when there are people witnessing to the light, there will always be responses, one way or the other. And that's the second part, or the third glimpse, I should say, of the word who's become flesh. There are going to be responses to his coming, and we will see this in the rest of the gospel. Look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So this is preparing us for the responses. Now, let me be clear on this. 
I do not think that what verse 9 is saying is that it's describing some sort of prevenient grace that every person receives and that gives enough light and enough understanding to a sinful heart that then they can choose grace and choose Christ. It sort of awakens the will to him enough where that person can respond. I don't think that's what this is talking about. This is talking about the objective revelation and reality of the incarnation, the light coming into the world. The light has shone externally on people because of the incarnation, and all people are now accountable because the light has come. But the responses to the light, you can have a light shining, but your response to that will differ from person to person. There's two levels of rejection that happen here. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. John is talking here about the world, the entire grouping of sinful human beings on the planet, people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation, the system of sinful human beings that are organized together in rebellion against God. He came to those people. He created those people, the very people he made. He came to them. They are accountable to him because he created them. They're responsible to him. He's our maker, and yet, as he came into the world and to those people, they rejected him. They did not know him. They did not recognize him as the light. They didn't listen to the witnesses of John the Baptist in the Old Testament scriptures and others. And so the world largely rejected him. But there's another level to this rejection and response. Look at verse 11. He came to his own... And his own people did not receive him. Jesus created the world, as we've already seen, and he created a particular group of people, the nation of Israel. And he called them out of the world to be his own. And the language here in verse 11 is describing someone showing up to their own house and being kicked out of their own house not being allowed into their own place of residence with their own people and their own family. And that's what happened. And we'll see a lot of that. A rejection of the light in this gospel. Pretty quickly in this gospel, we're going to see tension between the Jewish leadership and between Jesus. And it's going to happen and it's going to escalate throughout the gospel. And in fact, you can't tell the story of the work of Christ without the rejection of his own people. But when you tell the story of the rejection of his own people, of him then you automatically get to the good news of verses 12 and 13. And so one of the responses that we see is rejection, certainly, to the light. But then we get to verses 12 and 13. Some do not reject the light. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Some see the light and receive the light. Well, what does it mean to receive him? John defines it for us. Verse 12, who believed in his name? That is the major focus of this gospel. Believing in his name. Now, what does it mean to believe in his name? A name, your name is all that you are. It stands in for your full character. It's everything about you. 
All that a person is. And so to believe in the name of Christ is to believe what verses 1 and 5 have said about him, that he was with God and he was God. It's to believe what the signs in this gospel will indicate about him. It's to believe that he died on the cross as a substitutionary atonement to win the victory over sin and death. It's to believe that he rose from the dead. It's all that he is. It's his whole person. You receive that. You embrace that. That story finds resonance in your heart and you accept it as true and you place your faith in that and you trust in that. This gospel is telling the truth, what actually happened. And when your heart responds to this gospel story that way, verse 12 says what happens. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right or the authority to become children of God. In the Old Testament, Israel is designated as the son of God. And now those who trust in the light and believe his name receive the title children of God. But it's interesting here because just as you did not initiate and bring about your own birth, in the same way, you do not initiate and bring about your own spiritual birth. Look at verse 13. Who, these, those that are called the children of God, those that are born of God, verse 13, it says, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You didn't bring about your own physical birth, and in the same way, you do not bring about your own spiritual birth. John goes to great lengths. He's very explicit and very clear here that making sure that you understand we do not become children of God through family connections, through ethnicity, through descendants. You do not become a child of God by your own will, your own desires, or the desires of any human being. You do not become a child of God because of some particularly good and wise choice that you have made. Receiving the truth about the light happens as God graciously opens your eyes. It is of the will of God that this happens. It is a gift of grace. It is something that happens to you and he gives you the gift of faith and you believe. And that's exactly why the word has come. For God to reveal himself through the word to us and to open our eyes to his glory. And that's the last glimpse here. The reason for his coming. Verses 14 through 18. Look at verse 14 with me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John has not used this title, word, the word, since the first couple of verses of, of this gospel. So he's sort of gone away from it, and he uses it again here because he wants to draw your attention back to those first couple of verses. He wants you to remember what he said about the word. Well, what did he say about the word? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, pre-existent, distinct from the Father, yet in relationship with the Father, and at the same time of the essence of the Father, of God. That's who he is. He's the one who existed in eternity with God, 
who created the world, who sustains all things with his life, who is the light of men, that is the word who became flesh. Heaven met earth here. Heaven came down to earth here. Now, one author pointed out that when the word became flesh, he did not cease to be the word. He didn't leave behind the the description of himself in verses 1 and 2 and 3 here. He is who he is. He's both of these at the same time. And when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, this was the point in the biblical story where heaven and earth truly met. This is when it happened. Now notice what John says in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You've heard me say this before when we were in the book of Exodus, but this word dwelt literally means tabernacled. I mean, that's the description that's given here. And so this takes us back to the Old Testament. It takes us back to the book of Exodus and Israel being in the wilderness, becoming a nation there. And when God constituted them as a nation and gave them their charter in the law, one of the things he did was he said, I want to come and dwell among you. You will be my special people as you have my presence among you. But of course, that had to be mediated because of their sinfulness. And so he required them to build a tabernacle where he would come and he would dwell among them, he would tabernacle with them. But now, through the incarnation, God has come and tabernacled or dwelt among his people in human flesh, becoming one of us. He has set up camp through the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so rather than a tabernacle, rather than a temple that was constructed, now the true expression of God's presence with his people is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why did he do this? Look at the rest of verse 14. The word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you remember back in the book of Exodus when Moses asks to see God's glory? Back in chapter 32 or 30, I think it's in 33. He asks requests of God to see his glory, and God replies to Moses and says, yes, I will reveal my glory to you, but only partially. You can't see who I am completely. You can't look at me face to face. You can only view me from the back. And as this happens, and as God reveals himself to Moses, here's what he says. He proclaims this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so in John 1, John has already pictured Jesus as tabernacling among human beings, and now he draws language directly from Exodus 34 here and talks about glory. Moses asked to see God's glory and only got a partial view, but even that partial view made it clear that God was filled with, what does it say at the end of this, steadfast love and faithfulness. This is a revelation of God's character, of his glory. His glory is just the going public of his character. It's him putting on display who he is. And so he tells Moses, this is who I am. I'm this sort of God, and I'm filled with steadfast love and faithfulness. 
But Moses only saw this partially. But John picks up on that story here and points out that Jesus has fully revealed God's glory to us in a more distinct and a more clear way. He does that when he says grace and truth. Those correspond to steadfast love and faithfulness. And Jesus has made those qualities and that character of God abundantly clear through his life and through his death. Now, if you're going through this text, get to verse 15. This is sort of an aside here that the Apostle John does and writes about John bearing witness. He wants to make very clear that John the Baptist is not the light, but that he's bearing witness to the light. He's witnessing to the word who has become flesh. And then verses 16 through 18 pick up on verse 14. And so you need to see that. Verse 16 begins with the word for. It goes back to verse 14. Now, at the end of verse 14, you see that he is the only son, the unique son from the Father. What does it say? Full of grace and truth. And then if you look in verse 16, it says, For from his fullness we have all received. So Jesus is full of grace and truth. And now verse 16 says we've all received from his fullness. And then that fullness is grace upon grace. Now, let me try to explain this to you and the logic of what's happening here, all right? Let's start with the idea of fullness. Fullness means to be completely sufficient. Paul speaks about Jesus in this way in Colossians 1.19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's all that God is, all of God's character in grace and in truth. He is all of that, and we receive from that as we are born again as children of God. Now, verse 17 goes back to verse 16 and explains the grace upon grace part of this. So look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, who we've already encountered in this text. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You can see verse 17 begins with the word for, so it goes back to verse 16. Let me put all this together for you, right? People have often read verse 17 to be talking negatively or disparagingly about the law of Moses and what was revealed to Moses in the Old Testament. But I don't think that's what's happening here. Verse 17 is explaining verse 16. Verse 16 talks about grace piling on top of grace. And so here's what all of this means, and here's what John is getting at. We receive from the work of Christ, from his being the light and the word, we receive from Christ's fullness, from all that he is. We benefit from that as grace. It is a gift of grace to us, and it is grace piled on top of grace. The first grace that it is piled on top of here is the Old Testament law. The revelation of God that we receive in the Old Testament. Listen, God's grace was demonstrated in his revelation of himself through the law, through books like Exodus in the Old Testament. It wasn't a negative thing. It was a wonderful thing. God revealed himself to Moses and to the Israelites and to us through that. But the point here of the grace upon grace is now we have an even greater revelation, a clearer revelation of who God is. We can see the glory of God in a much more distinct and clear way through the work of Jesus Christ. 
We see grace and truth for all that they are in God through Jesus Christ. In fact, this book, John, talks about the Old Testament law as pointing forward to Jesus and finding its climax in him anyway. John 5, 46 and 47. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses wrote about the word, the light, about the Messiah coming. One author put it like this. God's character of grace and truth was revealed with the giving of law, but made fully available to humanity ultimately through Christ. So that's what John is talking about here in verses 14 through 17. He's talking about the revelation of who God is through the word, the light, who became flesh. Now we see all of this clearly, very distinctly through Jesus and through this book about him that we're reading. Then verse 18 sort of circles back around and completes the whole prologue or the whole lobby. It bookends this whole section. Moses was told he could not look directly at God's face. No human being could see God and live. And yet the word, the only God who existed with God at the Father's side, he has made him known. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side in his bosom, who is with him, he has made him known. And this is the reason for his coming. This is why he came. And every aspect of his life will reveal more of God to us. The whole book is set up this way. To continually put the word who was with God and who was God on display for you and I. To witness to who he is. To talk about him. To exposit him, right? That's the word here. To make him known. To draw out and reveal what is there to put God's character and his glory on display. Every aspect of his life, not just the signs. You could say, well, this doesn't really even talk about his death and his resurrection. But even those put his glory on display in an especially poignant way. They reveal the mercy and the grace of God and the truth and the justice of God at the same time. And as he is put on display, as he is revealed week after week as we go through this, faith is the end goal. It's faith, it's belief, it's trust in him. And faith will happen through the work of God. And new life will begin in some, hopefully. They will be born again, as Jesus talks about in chapter 3. They will become children of God. New life will happen in them, and faith will grow in others. So here's what to expect from John's gospel. As we've entered the lobby here, we've surveyed the landscape, we've looked at the map, and we've seen what's coming in John's gospel. Here's what to expect. Over and over again, in all of these different nuanced ways, and from different perspectives, and through different signs and miracles, and through Jesus teaching and explaining and responding to questions, 
doing all of these different things that he does over and over again. We're going to see the identity of the word made flesh through witnesses to his glory. And there will be responses. There will be responses in your heart as well. There will be responses in the gospel, both negative and positive, to the proclamation of who he is. The light shines, and some will see it and rejoice in it, and some will reject it and go further away from him and further into the darkness. And all of this is meant to foster faith in the reader as God is put on display through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm looking forward to studying this together. I pray it'll be a blessing and a benefit to each one of us as we see Christ week after week. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this book. We're so thankful for your word. We would certainly be lost in darkness without the scriptures. We would be stumbling around trying to figure life out, trying to make sense of what is good and what is bad, of how to live, of how to find fulfillment and how to find satisfaction, of what happens after, after death, all would be confusing to us. We would be trying to figure it out with our limited lifespan and with our tiny and insignificant brains. And we wouldn't be able to do it. But in your grace and in your glory, you have revealed yourself to us. You have told us the true story of the world, and we have it here. Where else can we go? We have the revelation of who you are, the creator God of the universe, in the scriptures. And we have a story of the moment where you came down to earth to meet us. You revealed yourself to us and proclaimed this through witnesses so that we can believe and so that we can be drawn back into your presence and we can have a future with you delighting in who you are so that we can receive eternal life. And then, so we can live this life on earth as we were truly meant to live, a life of devotion to you and of sacrifice for the good of others and of loving communion with you as we serve others. And so we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the grace that we have in the scriptures. I pray that you would use this gospel and our series through it to strengthen faith, to bring about new faith in some. And I pray that you would put your character on display in ways that go far beyond what I can verbalize from the pulpit, that your spirit would work in our hearts and cause us to love you more. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.